DIY and How Studios presents Real Rock with Andy King, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101. We will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon. Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. Welcome to Real Rock, I'm your host Andy King, and today we will be discussing the 1964 Beatles classic, A Hard Day's Night. I will be discussing various points of the film, so consider this your spoiler warning. The film is available for rent or to own on Amazon and the Google Play Store. Go check it out and come back for our discussion. Some of the questions we will be answering today are, what makes Paul's grandfather so clean? Why does Ringo look so sad? And is that Phil Collins? Well, I, if he says so. This is Real Rock, and today's selection is A Hard Day's Night. Did you find America? Turn left to Greenland. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. Oh. When I'm United Artists really wanted to cash in on Beatlemania. Now, they viewed the Fab Four as a flash-in-the-pan trend that would die down soon. Yeah, they were wrong. 
But UA wanted to release the soundtrack in the States before Capitol, so they handed over $500,000 and gave him 16 weeks to rush a film out there. Well, the Beatles, being as productive as they were in 1964, finished in seven weeks, and this movie was so popular at theaters that more than 1,600 prints of the film were in circulation simultaneously. No, actually, we're just good friends. By 1971, the film had grossed an estimated 11 million worldwide. Today's cash, that would be 87 million. For director, the Beatles chose American Richard Lester from the list of possible directors. In particular, John Champion Lester. John was a huge fan of the Peter Sellers vehicle, the running, jumping, and standing still film. In this film, Lester does something revolutionary. He uses multiple camera angles in the performances. This adds another level to the performance pieces. The multiple angle approach makes the Beatles both larger than life and intimate at the same time. John was right. Lester was the right choice. Has success changed your life? Yes. The script had been assigned to Alan Owen. The Beatles were familiar with Owen's play, No Trams to Lime Street, and knew that he could handle the Liverpudlian vernacular. Owen hung around John, Paul, George, and Ringo for a few days to really get to know the boys and write a script around what he witnessed. What Owen witnessed was mass hysteria, the absurdity of fame, and room. Lots and lots of rooms. One of the Beatles which one couldn't be verified, told Owen that their life was, quote, a train and a room and a car and a room and a room. Owen had interpreted their lives as being prisoners of the fame they had achieved and their schedules punishing. But the boys each had their own character, their own unique style. Owen just turned these personalities up to 11. John is a smartass. Paul is kind of a goody-goody. George is shy and quiet. And Ringo is dumb and kind of sad. Owen was very careful to write words that the Beatles themselves would actually say, and that's what makes this film so good. It's authenticity. We'd like you to give us your opinion on some clothes for teenagers. Oh, by all means, I'd be quite prepared for that eventuality. The film starts as we see the Beatles running from some screaming fans. These were actual fans chasing their heroes in this scene. For the rest of the movie, they use extras, but this was the real deal. The boys board a train, and they are trying to relax, but no one seems to want to let them. We are introduced to Paul's grandfather, John McCartney, who proves to be a thorn in the side of any potential relaxation the Beatles might have had. Grandfather McCartney was played by Wilfred Bramble, who at the time was riding pretty high with his show Steptoe and Son. Steptoe and Son was a comedy about a junkyard owner who had lived with his son as hijinks ensued. The show was remade for American audiences and renamed Sanford and Son. The big catchphrase of Steptoe and Son was, You dirty old man! In A Hard Day's Night, when the boys introduce Paul's grandfather, they constantly refer to him as quite clean, as a hint hint almost fourth wall break. Hey, who's the little old man? It's Paul's grandfather. Oh, I better thought so. No, that's his other one. Oh, that's all right then. Clean though, isn't it? Oh, he's very clean. In one back and forth scene in the train car, Ringo spins the dial on a transistor radio and stops on a generic rock tune. 
This tune was recorded by session musicians at Abbey Road specifically for the film. On guitar in that track is Jimmy Page. John McCartney wanders off and ends up having a tryst with a lady passenger when he was caught and sent to the guard's car. The band joins him to keep him company and play I Should Have Known Better for the schoolgirls that join him. One of those schoolgirls was Patty Boyd, George Harrison's future wife and muse for many a rock ballad. Once they get to London, the boys have to deal with the press and are tasked with answering fan letters. The scene with the press is, in my opinion, the best scene of any Beatles movie. The back and forth with the reporters and their wit really showcase each Beatle for themselves. Their quick responses to questions are hilarious and snide, and in one scene, a reporter asks John Lennon if he has any hobbies. He scribbles a word onto a notepad and she reads it. She is simultaneously blushing and shocked. The word John wrote down as his hobby? Tits. My favorite quip is when George is asked what he calls that kind of haircut, and he answers, Arthur. The boys then sneak out to party to a Beatle playlist, including I Want to Be Your Man and All My Loving, and Ringo dances like no one else in this scene. So let's all take a pause here and do the Ringo. Close your eyes, I Beatles return to find that Paul's grandfather has gone to the casino where, to the surprise of no one, he is causing trouble. The band are escorted to a theater where they rehearse If I Fell, and satisfied with their practice, they go through a fire escape and dance in a field. Well, three of the Beatles are dancing in a field to Can't Buy Me Love. John's actually not even there. He was out promoting his book in his own right, so they used a body double and edited in John's close-ups later. The boys get back to the studio, and after two cases of mistaken identity, they rehearse and I love her and play I'm happy just to dance with you to impress the makeup artist. What kind of girls do you prefer? My wife. Your wife. What yes. kind of girl is she? She's a nice girl. A nice girl. Is this to me? When you marry, what kind of girl are you going to have? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I haven't sorted one out yet. I like them all. Uh, George. Wait, what? Yeah, how about that? How about that, eh? Ain't that very hey, thank you. But I'm what kind of girl do you like? Uh, John's wife. John's wife. Totally <laughs> While they wait to perform, Ringo is tasked with watching after Paul's grandfather. After a bit of verbal bullying, 
Ringo escapes to go spend some time alone. Ringo's performance here is absolutely wonderful. His physical comedy is unmatched by even the comedic actors of his day. It should be noted that morose and nauseous look on Starkey's face is actually due to a killer hangover, according to the man himself. Ringo is then arrested for being suspicious, and while he's in a holding cell, he is joined by, wait for it, Paul's grandfather. John McCartney makes a run for it and tells the boys where Ringo is, and they go find him, rush back to the studio, and finally perform for TV. In the audience is a young Phil Collins. No, seriously, look it up. Phil Collins is in this movie. And A Hard Day's Night was a chance to spend 90 minutes with them at the local cinema, which is sort of what I was doing. I was in London's old Scarlet Theatre, screaming my head off at the Beatles who were on the stage, in the flesh, singing their latest batch of hit songs, not just for us, but more importantly, for the cameras. There. Did you see me? Yes, well, I know I wasn't exactly easy to spot, but I am there. Yes, I was an extra in A Hard Day's Night. Now, trust me, I didn't get the part because of my extraordinary acting ability. Actually, I was there because, like everybody else in the theater, I was crazy about the Beatles. And believe me, we didn't have to do much acting. This movie is great. It's funny, and it weaves the soundtrack in a way that makes it seamless. Nothing is out of place in this film. It all works. A lot of these jukebox exploitation movies shoehorn the songs in randomly, but not here. It should also be noted that the quick cuts and on-the-move interview scenes were revolutionary for the time. Aaron Sorkin owes his favorite shot style to this film. The shaky cam style, made famous from MTV, came from this movie. It is often cited as being the father of the music video, and that description is completely valid. You can take each performance and it stands alone apart from the film, as well as working in the film itself. As a film, it is fabulous, and as an introduction to the Beatles, it cannot be beat. I first watched this movie when I was 13, some 20 years ago, and I feel that it still stands up to more modern films. To put this to the test, I watched this film with 16-year-old Matthew. He is new to rock and roll and wasn't familiar with the Beatles, so I was really interested in what he had to say. Watching this movie, I really learned a lot about the music that I was missing out on. It's like a whole new world of music that I wasn't familiar with before. Yeah, I think it's, it's a new experience. I mean, it, it's really casual uh, to me. I mean, they're all just kind of having fun and cracking jokes and dodging the woman. And I think that's, that's the best part about it. Fans chasing after them. Uh, the music was great. Uh, after watching that, I enjoyed it so much that I was thinking, you know, well, I've got to watch some more of their movies and, you know, listen to their music, so see what I was missing out on. Now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that tab and all the other pimply hyperboles. I wouldn't be seen dead in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. The Beatles are one of those bands that transcend rock and roll, and this film is in the upper echelon of film history. And perhaps the best narrative rock and roll film starring a band themselves. Critics have rejoiced this film since its release, and with good reason. The current Rotten Tomatoes score for this film is 98%. The official rock and roll rating for this film is a perfect 5 out of 5. If this tickled your fancy, head over to the Rock and Roll Archaeology website, and please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. As a supplement to this show, I highly recommend the Ron Howard documentary 8 Days a Week, streaming on Hulu, as well as episodes 7 and 8 of our main narrative for more Beatles information. I'm Andy King, and this has been Real Rock. It's been a
looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Real Rock is produced by DIY and House Studios and is a part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Real Rock is written by Andy King. All commentary and opinions are that of the host. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Playlists can be found at Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rockandrollarchaeology.com for more information.